U.S.-Mexico border security and immigration are at the forefront as we head into the 2024 election. What does it mean for U.S. troops at the border? Produced by Defense News and Military Times, this is the Early Bird Brief. Each morning, we bring you the defense and national security news of the day. We have a humanitarian and national security crisis at our southern border. And how Native American veterans gained increased influence in this year's defense policy bill. What does it all mean for our defense and security? You'll find out. I'm your host, Simone Perez. Today is Thursday, December 21st, 2023. A quick note for everyone, we'll be off for the holidays tomorrow and Monday. But while you're eating Christmas leftovers, watching the kids play with their plane that loops the loop or hula hoops, or braving the cold for a midwinter stroll, check out our very special end of the year episode. We take you through what has happened the last year, from Chinese spy balloons to serious recruiting woes to the political dynamics of Congress. We cover it all. Now back to the episode. First up, border security and immigration have been a centerpiece of Republican criticisms of the Biden administration. Border security is national security. Certainly the events in Israel should bring home to us the danger of a border that is not properly protected. And it is President Biden's policies that have led to this humanitarian and security crisis. For more on the outlook in 2024, Army Times reporter Davis Winkie joins the episode. So Davis, what did this past year look like regarding military efforts at the U.S.-Mexico border? Yeah, this year has seen a really chaotic year at the southern border when it comes to migrants trying to make it to the U.S., whether it's because of issues with organized crime in their countries, whether it's people coming uh, from across the world and just transiting up via land. There have been record numbers of migrants at the border almost every month this year, and That's had a big impact on a lot of communities throughout Texas and then also throughout the country as well. The Biden administration tried to respond by expanding its already existing federally controlled National Guard mission there. Essentially, there have been 2,500 guardsmen on a full-time basis supporting the Department of Homeland Security there. And in the early fall when it appeared that pandemic era restrictions that allowed expulsion of migrants were going to lift, the Biden administration also sent a number of active duty forces as well to help put more Border Patrol people on the line by having the troops replace ones who were doing like admin tasks or logistical work, etc. At the same time, though, you've had some governors, mostly Republicans, who have said the Biden administration is not doing enough militarily at the border and have taken matters into their own hands. 2023 saw uh, the continuation of Operation Lone Star, which is Texas Governor Greg Abbott's crown jewel of his border security efforts. That's had several thousand Texas guardsmen along the border dating all the way back to the spring of 2021. 
And other governors have contributed small amounts of troops to Texas's state-run effort as well. And their line has been that the administration's not doing enough. More recently, Arizona's governor, a Democrat, has also sent some troops to the border on state orders because of what she too believes is inaction by the federal government in the face of what appears to be an escalating crisis. That has led the rhetoric surrounding the border for the 2024 presidential campaign to be quite shocking, one would say. Yeah, and so some Republicans have frequently criticized the Biden administration's immigration policies. And with the 2024 election cycle nearly in full swing, many eyes are on the two potential frontrunners, President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump. But what does this upcoming year look like at the intersection of the 2024 election, immigration, and these piecemeal efforts, if you will, by state and federal forces to stem the flow of immigration? So the best insight we have into the GOP's border security game plan is actually coming through in its uh, primary presidential campaigns, primary presidential debates. I will add, of course, that Donald Trump has not participated in those. He's almost certain to win the Republican nomination. Even people who are considered to be mainstream Republicans are starting to build a consensus that there needs to be a more significant militarization of the southern border. That ranges from large-scale deployments that are intended to plug gaps along the line to some candidates arguing that there needs to be unilateral armed direct action by U.S. troops inside of Mexico. The Mexican government has said, no, you may not violate our sovereignty to launch armed strikes or special forces raids against targets within our borders. But some of the GOP candidates have said that they don't care whether the Mexican government agrees or not and say that they would apply maximum pressure or, if necessary, carry these out unilaterally. Uh, Trump is a little bit more cagey about where he personally stands on the issue, but books and reporting coming out of his first term really suggested that he wanted to have a more robust military effort at the southern border than he did. Uh, He reportedly wanted to have cruise missile strikes against cartels, for example, across the border. So the, the upshot of this is that a consensus is forming among the GOP in Congress, in the presidential campaign, that there needs to be a massively expanded presence of our military at the southern border. As for what exactly they'll do, that's that's going to depend on who gets in power, what authorities they decide to wield, and how willing the Mexican government is to go along with it. But it's definitely a change in tone from previous efforts, which have focused more on plugging the gaps along the border. Another important story, an organization representing Native American veterans is set to receive a congressional charter after a nearly 20-year effort. That makes it the first ever Native American dedicated group recipient and the first of any veterans group to receive a charter in almost 15 years. For more on this, military veterans and journalism fellow Nikki Wentling joins the episode today. Hey, Nikki, so can you tell us about the recent provision in the National Defense Bill? What does it include about the Native American veteran community, and how do folks say it will help them? 
The National Defense Policy Bill was approved by Congress last week, and it included a charter for a nonprofit organization called the National American Indian Veterans, um, or they go by NAIV. So this charter um, will allow the organization um, to testify about veterans' issues in Congress. Um, and then it also provides a way for the group um, to get some of its members accredited with the Department of Veterans Affairs. And that will allow you know, some of these members to log into you know, the VA's systems for claims and help veterans and their families you know, on tribal lands uh, with benefits claims. And we know that assistance uh, for veterans on reservations is currently uh, really lacking, mostly because of, um, you know, the lack of cultural competency um, to help these vets get their earned benefits. And in general, is it common or how common is it for Congress to grant these charters and specifically to veteran organizations at that? This is a really rare move by Congress. This group specifically has been fighting Congress for uh, 19 years um, to get this charter approved. The the group was founded in 2004 and has been pushing ever since then to get this charter. Um, It's so rare because, you know, back in the late 80s, um, a congressional committee sought to limit the practice and put a moratorium on it that ended in 2019. Um, There were a few groups that were able to get around that moratorium, um, including the Military Officers Association of America. And that was the last veterans group um, before this one to get a charter. And that was in 2009. So, you know, about 15 years ago. Um, So this is a really rare move. And, you know, the committee put that that pause in because, you know, they thought it gave the perception that Congress was able to monitor uh, and condone all the activities of congressionally chartered organizations. And that's not necessarily the case. They do uh, tend to face more scrutiny, but um, Congress isn't able to keep, you know, that close of an eye on all of their operations. Also on your radar for today, the military is gearing up to help ensure Santa travels safely this holiday season. North American Aerospace Defense Command, or NORAD, tracks Santa's flight across the globe each year. But Pentagon Spokesman Brigadier General Pat Ryder said this week that he can't say much else about the special mission. Can the Defense Department provide a breakdown of assets and personnel that will be involved in escorting Santa Claus on December 24th and 25th? Thank you. Unfortunately, that's controlled, unclassified information. Uh, But I can assure you that we will ensure that Santa gets wherever he needs to go uh, safely and securely. Uh, But uh, all joking aside, I know that our our teammates at uh, NORAD Northcom will have much more information to provide uh, on Santa's trip this holiday season. So uh, I'm sure he'll be on time in, uh, in place for Christmas. So. NORAD's holiday mission started by accident, actually. A child trying to reach Santa accidentally called NORAD's predecessor, the Continental Air Defense Command Operations Center, in 1955. Since then, the organization has reported on Santa's location across the world on Christmas Eve. And we have another special holiday story for you today, from our sister company, HistoryNet. Was there a football game between British and Germans in 1914 during World War I? Well, this Christmas episode of the AI-generated HistoryNet podcast has some insight. Take a listen to this clip. Over the Christmas period in 1914, fraternization took place in no man's land between British and German soldiers at St. Yvon in Belgium. Memorials in the Belgian villages of St. Yvon and Messines commemorate a football game played between the British and the Germans during the truce. Whenever this author mentions that his grandfather Robert Hamilton 
a captain in the 1st Battalion of the British Army's Royal Warwickshire Regiment, was involved in the Christmas truce at St. Yvonne, he is invariably asked whether Hamilton played in a game of football against the Germans. It is a fair question, given that it is now widely accepted that there was an international match there. However, evidence from accounts by those who took part in the truce casts doubt over whether such a game took place at all, and calls into question the justification for the installation of the three memorials, one on the edge of Plugstert Wood and two in Messines. Where did the story come from? To listen to the rest of the episode, you can look you can find it on www.historynet.com. The History Net podcast has been created in partnership with instaread.co, whose audio player has been embedded in stories on historynet.com. What will you find though on the History Net podcast? Well, pretty much the best stories from their enormous archives of articles spanning everything from ancient Greece and Rome to the epic transformations of the last few centuries. Every day, including weekends, you'll find a new episode delving into, say, the Klondike Gold Rush or the swirling chaos of the Pacific War. You can find more episodes of the History Net podcast pretty much anywhere. It's on Spotify, on Amazon, on Apple, and plenty of other outlets. Just go to whichever podcast app you like and search for, quote, the History Net podcast. And now here's some other stories that we're hearing chirps about. In case you missed it, Senate lawmakers this week confirmed 11 senior military nominees that had been stalled for months. It put an end to the nearly year-long political blockade by Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin flew out to the aircraft carrier Gerald R. Ford yesterday. On board, he met with sailors he has ordered to remain at sea to prevent the Israel-Hamas war from spilling over into a deadlier regional conflict. Convicted, de- convicted defense contractor Leonard Fat Leonard Francis will be extradited to the United States as part of the Venezuelan prisoner swap announced yesterday. It's the latest twist in a decade-long saga and, and bribery scheme that swept up dozens of American Navy officers. And the Miami Herald reported that federal prosecutors said a man who called himself Captain America drove up to MacDill Air Force Base in Florida and demanded entry while an AR-15 rifle and loaded magazines were in the trunk of his car. And on this day in history, in 2017, NASA astronaut and naval aviator Bruce McCandless, the first person to fly freely and untethered in space, died. He was 80. That's it for us this morning. To get more top stories and breaking news, go to defensenews.com ebb to subscribe to the Early Bird Brief newsletter. Please give us a like, rating, and a comment wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to follow us on social media at Defense underscore news and at Military Times. The Early Bird Brief is hosted and produced by me, Zabon Z. Perez. This episode included stories by Davis Swinky, Nikki Wetling, Jonathan Lairfeld, and Andrew Hamilton from HistoryNet. Our editor-in-chief is Mike Groose. Have a great day.